BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello, I'm Ariana Maddox, reality TV star, author, mixologist, and major daydreamer. My show, Earth to Ariana, is where we can all get lost in conversation together. Whether it's the weird things we fangirl over or our trauma and triumphs, we all have a story to tell, including you. We really are all connected, and I can't wait to explore these conversations with you. Every week, we will be putting on our comfiest PJs, circling up with a cocktail, and chatting with fans and friends alike. We might even get a little too comfortable. Check out Earth to Ariana anywhere you listen to podcasts. We release new episodes every week. I'm Caroline Stanbury, star of The Real Housewives of Dubai. I'm remarried and living my best life ever. See, there's so much life after divorce. I'm starting my new chapter unapologetically. I'm bringing real stories, real life, Real talk on all things that aren't said between each other, society, the sheets, and everything in the middle. And lucky me, you'll be joining me on the journey. Listen to all new episodes every Wednesday. So buckle up. So welcome back to another episode of Divorce Not Dead. And I'm really excited today, I have to be honest, because I've been looking forward to this and to listening to this myself. Um, I'm joined by Kelly Frawley and Emily Pollock. They are leading matrimonial and family law practitioners with nearly three decades of combined experience, respectively. They handle complex financial and custodial matters and litigate issues ranging from equitable distribution, child and spousal support, paternity and orders of protection as partners with Kawoski, Benson, Torres, LLP. Emily has been recognized as a rising star by New York Metro Super Lawyers and selected for inclusion in the best lawyers in America in the area of family law. They have both been named Lawline Top Women Faculty of 2019. Kelly has been recognized on the benchmark of litigation 40 under hot list. Crane's New York 2022 Notable Women in Law list. I mean, I don't even know where to... Start really, girls. Wow. So I was looking at our topics today and what we're going to go through. And they're all so different than, quite frankly, I want to do so many of them. But I'm actually really, really interested, I think. And the best best way to go is what I always get asked, especially about my divorce, is how did you work out 
the financial side. And I think, you know, a lot of women, I mean, I'm lucky because as you know, I'm a working woman. And so as much as it's scary, I do know how to go back to work, but many women don't. And how do women, and actually I've got a few friends going through it now, going, what the fuck am I going to do? And what's normal? And how much, how long does it last? I mean, here you get paid, I think, to the child is 21, but you don't get much. So how do you know how you're going to end up and what is the norm? And, you know, I think I think that's really everybody's biggest question, girls. Sure. I think, uh, Caroline, a good place to start is just to let your viewers know that matrimonial and family law, at least here in the United States, is state-specific. So Emily and I practice in New York. I'm admitted in California and New Jersey. And even though I have those admissions, I focus my practice exclusively in New York because it's the law is just very specific. It could be even in the same state, depending on where you are in that state. So I just I just want to give that sort of caveat when we're, when we're talking that it's coming from this place as New York practitioners. But but look, even you know we don't have to get into the specifics of the law. Just general pr- principles that apply whether you're in you know on the East Coast or the West Coast. I think that would be great because to be honest, I live in the Middle East, which is you know, the whole nother. <laughs> thing. I think it's just in general, because just like, I mean, I know you can't generalize completely, but I know, I know also know that, you know, how do you work off it? Like, obviously, is there a set formula for a sort of, if if a woman doesn't have a job at all, and she's lived with her husband, maybe 20 years, is, is it different to a woman that has a job and has been, you know, still, still been married the same amount of time, but she knows how to go out to work. You know, all of these things, how, how do you work it out? How do you look at it? How do you equate what, what is due to somebody? And then there's other people that have just been married a couple of years and then decide, you know, they want to jump out. And this really irritates me because a lot of, some women sort of ruin it for the rest of us and just see it as a free ride and a way to get a paycheck at the end of the day. So how do you sort of equate it, equate the difference? there are three financial pieces to a divorce case, right? There's dividing up the assets and liabilities, and then there's determining what support obligations may exist both during the divorce case and then once you are divorced, right? And then during the divorce case is what we call temporary maintenance or child support, pendente lite, interim. There's all sorts of different ways to describe it. And the purpose of that support is really to try and maintain the status quo as much as possible. So you're going to try and come up with a spouse support amount and a child support amount that will help everyone sort of maintain the current status until you get divorced. And then once you get divorced, the purpose of child support is to obviously support the children to try and help both parents be in a situation where they can maintain appropriate housing, appropriate food, appropriate clothing for the child, and then spousal support, the purpose of which is to help the lesser income earning or no income earning spouse. Typically, as you said, when we started the show, the woman, if it's a heterosexual relationship, transition into becoming self-supporting. And what that looks like is, is going to depend on the circumstances, right? Is she getting a lot of assets that's going to throw off income? If she is, that's probably going to bring down the amount of spousal support that she'll get. Is she, as you described, somebody who was married for two years and before she got married, she was, you know, a powerhouse on Wall Street then she's probably not getting a lot of support for a two-year marriage when she clearly has the skill set to be self-supporting. If she's someone who never really worked outside the home and they've been married for 20 years, then there's probably going to be a a more significant spousal support obligation going forward because she's not going to have the ability to transition as easily into becoming self-supporting. So the the marital lifestyle, 
the respective incomes of each of the spouses, the length of the marriage is, is a really important factor. These are all things that the court's going to take into consideration when they're trying to figure out what the long-term maintenance, alimony, spousal support, these are all words that mean the same thing, is going to be. We usually encourage if, if you know, sometimes it, it's not uncommon for a woman to consult with us for maybe a year or two before they actually decide they want to get divorced. And part of that process, I'll discuss with them, what is it you like to do? You know, are there hobbies that you find interesting that you could turn into a career? At any point, did you, you know, did you earn a degree? Did you start to work towards a degree? So that period of time where they're thinking through whether a divorce is the path that they want to go down, I try to explore with them what their career options or you know, potential work that they could, could engage in. Is there ever a time where, you know, because also if there's a smaller pot and they're not a gazillionaire, you know, obviously they're spending real money on you both sides, right? Is there a point that you say to your client, stop, don't spend on me? I know. Yes. yes because yes. sometimes we say stop or continue with another lawyer because <laughs> if it doesn't end, we can't do this with you anymore. Yeah. I mean, divorces can be very contentious and, and people can really waste a lot of resources on issues that they shouldn't be addressing through the court. And we're constantly reminding them that whatever they put into the case in terms of money, filing motions, we can pretty much guarantee them that a year or two later that those motions and putting the money into the case will not have made them feel any better. It, it, it just, I always say save it and go on a really nice vacation after, after the divorce is finished because you'll enjoy that more. <laughs> so and true. You, you know, as much as it might sting, it, it's better for you to pay that money to your spouse than to pay us to fight paying the money to your spouse because the, the sort of opportunity cost of the time and the energy and the hostility that's generated by this kind of, you know, repeated motion practice can be really damaging and expensive. Very, very expensive. And I think that's the, the problem. People lose sight of the end game, which is actually just to move on. And really, as I've always said and maintained, there's no such thing as divorce if you've got kids. So it's like understanding that no matter how much or how hard you fight, the outcome's really going to end up, you might get a few percent more, but ultimately that's about it, you know, and much less headache if you sort of come out of this with some sort of relationship still together where you can be in the same room. So I think people put so much emphasis on getting as much as they can because it, maybe because they panic or because they're angry, you know, and they want to sort of pay someone back. And I got one lawyer. Okay. And we just split it because there was no point fighting. He's not a gazillionaire. There was a pot that was the pot that was the pot. So there's no point arguing over every single thing that, you know, would have gone to my children or back, you know, I'm not going to get any more because there isn't any more. Right. Right. So what is the split normally? I mean, I, I mean, we worked off assets 50, 50 because we'd been married 20 years. What is the normal ratio that you see for people? Because that's what I get asked a lot. And what does alimony look like for people? Roughly, is there any set formula to this or is it purely how, how do you calculate alimony? Because people, that's what women ask all the time. What's your alimony? People actually genuinely want to know what they're looking at. And it's very hard to say. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's where really where you're living is very important because each, each place is different. And what we, what we would say to your viewers, or your listeners is that find an attorney in your area 
who, to the extent you have somebody who exclusively practices in matrimonial family law, and that's their primary practice and what they do day in and day out, set up a meeting with them. And this might be a meeting you have before you even mention the D word to your partner. And so then you can understand, okay, this is the maximum I could get. And this is the minimum I may get. And this is the duration. And so you're always going to, you know, the lawyer is always going to tell you, I don't have a crystal ball, but this is what you could reasonably expect. Because a lot of women also don't know what their husbands are worth. They have no clue and they don't know what assets they have. And that's why, Carolyn, a lawyer who does this day in and day out knows how to get around that. We don't necessarily need to see the tax returns to figure it out. I mean, you could just sort of do a back of the envelope by asking questions about the lifestyle. So that's why it's important to meet with somebody who who knows who knows what they're doing. Because also things like trusts and wills and all of these things, are they included in divorce settlements? They can be. Usually we would recommend, certainly we're not going to draft, since we specialize in matrimonial and family law, you know, we don't draft state provisions that are detailed unless we have the inputs of the trust and estates council who's going to look at it. Generally, there are sort of big picture estate provisions that are included in a divorce decree. So, for example, you have spousal rights, depending on where you live, that are estate rights. And it's not uncommon to waive those in an agreement because there's usually a period of time between when you file the agreement and when you're actually divorced where you would still have those statutory rights, but maybe you guys agree, it's not really fair for you to have them if you've agreed to get divorced. So those kinds of provisions can be put in an agreement. But I think as an overall sort of picture of how to deal with what you're really describing as the anxiety of the unknown, yes, which a lot of women, particularly women who do not have the financial understanding of what their life costs and of what where that money comes from, you want to get a lawyer who's going to help shape that picture for you. So they're going to help you understand what your life costs from the dog walker to the soccer practice to, you know, the dinners out to your mortgage, right? They're going to get a picture of your entire life and do it in a way that you'll have confidence that the numbers you're dealing with are the right numbers. Then they're going to help you understand how that life gets paid for, right? Is that from current income? Are you drawing down savings? Do you have investment income that you're using? And then they'll help you craft what that life could look like for you after you get divorced. What can you afford? What can you continue? What do you need to think about stopping? Is this a situation where you're going to need to start to, you know, look into the opportunities, like Kelly was saying, where you're going to be self-supporting yourself, contributing to your own support and do it in a way where you feel like you understand what's happening and you're confident that the information you're getting is correct. So when you go forward after your divorce, you know, you have a plan and it's based on actual facts. A lot of women don't have that information, what we were saying, and and the the point of the divorce process is to get that information. So I always find one of the biggest misconceptions and fears is that, well, I don't know anything. So what will I do? And that's exactly why you have a lawyer, because they will get you that information. I think that's, that's really it. And especially if the woman is trying to get divorced and hasn't yet told their spouse it's on her mind or she's coming to see you, you know, and he's really the financial breadwinner. You know, your, your name isn't on the deed of the house. You don't see any paperwork other than to co-sign loans sometimes. And even then they never read them, you know, and I've heard many stories like this. We have one credit card. You don't know where his money is. He's got a bank account in Switzerland or whatever else it is. And it's hidden. So, you know, I think those type of women sort of get very, very lost of what, what, you know, how to find the information out without also letting on that you're maybe having these thoughts and what happens to them. Like, 
to the house, to all of these things? Are they due half of a house? If you have a house and you've lived in that house forever, what what happens with things like as an asset like that if they're not on the deed? Sure. So again, I mean, I, I keep saying this, so I'll stop, but it, it really depends where you live. But in New York, for example, title doesn't matter, right? You could, you might not have your name on anything whatsoever, but you still have an entitlement to share in those assets. So in New York, we're what's called an equitable distribution state. Doesn't necessarily mean equal, but for the most part, it does for mid-length to long-term marriages. So, you know, here in New York, never have to worry if your name's on anything. It depends. I mean, it depends on the asset, right? The real property that Kelly was talking about pretty much always is going to go 50-50 in a, in a marriage of any significance. Things like a spouse-owned business. So if one spouse has a business that he or she has primarily managed without any contribution from the other spouse, the division there in New York, for example, or, or in other equitable property states is probably going to not be 50-50. There'll be a larger percentage to the spouse that was more actively engaged in that business. But things like bank accounts, real property, stuff where the efforts of a spouse are not the reason that the pot is what it is, are likely going to go 50-50 if the marriage is long enough. And certainly if you're in a community property state, then that's how the law would apply. But this also gets us back to, you know, I know at some point there was a conversation about when do you talk to a lawyer? Should you talk to a lawyer or your spouse first if you're having thoughts? And really, this is a case where just like with the financial information, knowledge is power. You want to know what the law is, what's marital property, what's separate property. Are there separate property credits potentially that could be in place here? What would the law do with the asset portfolio that we have here in the jurisdiction that's going to govern our divorce? And that's the kind of information you can get from a from a lawyer who does this. And I think the other interesting thing is, so, you know, obviously you get sort of women who a different type of woman too, who's just used to being looked after, right? And then what is she, what is alimony exactly? What are you entitled to? I mean, does it include having your hair and nails done? Like what, what exactly does it sort of look like? How do you work that out? You just said your dog walk, your life, right? I mean, is the man really expected to continue your life as is? I mean, it really depends on what the lifestyle was during the marriage. If they were getting their you know, Botox treatments and their spa treatments, and it was something that the family could afford, then for some period of time, it's likely to continue after the divorce, maybe not to the same degree that a budget for housing and clothes would continue. But you know, a lot of, a lot of couples come to us because there is a misunderstanding and a disagreement about how the finances should be handled, right? And so the that type of spending could be what brought them to the office in the first place. They might not, they, you know, they might not have had the resources that could cover all those expenses. And now that they're going to be maintaining more than, you know, maintaining two homes or there's no longer the spouse won't have unfettered access to your credit card, it might not continue. I mean, a general theme, right, when you have two parties with a lifestyle like that who are getting divorced, is that as soon as divorce is a word that gets uttered the person with the money, typically the man says, I don't have any money. And the person who is not the money person says, we, you know, vacationed in private jets and we used to rent out entire islands and, you know, on and on and on. So you come in with these two totally disparate representations of what the life was. And that's when you have to look at the documents. Were they paying for that lifestyle from savings? I mean, if they were, that's not something that's going to have to continue at that level after the case, because if you're going to draw down your savings, why is it going to be his savings as opposed to the savings you're going to get right when you get divorced? So how that lifestyle is being paid for is a really important consideration. And children, if you have children together, what does child support 
consist of? Like, is it, is it, do they have to pay schooling and childcare or is it a shared responsibility? How does that work? Sure. It could be, it could be shared if both parties have income available to contribute to those expenses. But once again, for, you know, like we talked about with spouse support, child support also looks back at what the, what the parties had done when they were together. So if the children were in private school, that a hundred percent should continue. And that should be probably an expense that the family prioritizes because the court would over the Botox and the hair. Child care, for example, here in New York, you can't, you can't take the position that you want your wife to go work, but then not want to pay for full-time childcare to make sure that that could happen. And so in New York, if you're working, you'll have your ex-partner contribute to the cost of that childcare while you're working. Or even if you're looking to receive some type of training and education to become employed, those types of tasks would also have childcare covered by the other parent. I was just going to clarify, when we talk about child support in New York, and I think in many of the other states that we have come across, the concept of the basic child support payment, so the payment that goes from spouse A to spouse B, yes. is really primarily a bare bones payment to cover food, clothing, and housing, right? And it's all that extra stuff, you know, the extracurricular activities, the tutoring, the therapy, the, you know, childcare, education, like Kelly mentioned. Those are where a, a big chunk of the cost of kids actually is. And, and those are expenses that can trigger discussions about who's making these decisions, right? Does the person who has to pay for these things have a say in what the decisions are about whether Sally's going to take horseback riding or get into ninja class or those kinds of things? So how is, how is the obligation to pay tied to legal custody, which is the right to make decisions for the children? And how are we splitting up those payments? Right. Is that generally we split them up pro rata so that both parents have some payment obligation for those kinds of expenses. So you don't have a circumstance where one parent is picking whatever they want as the extracurricular expensive life of the child and the other one's just on the hook for the $30,000 summer camp without having had a conversation about it. So what do you find are the main reasons, well, in New York for breakdowns of marriages today? Because, you know, the world is, it's sort of, there's so many options. And I feel with, with the way we're going in such a fast space that life has just changed in mar- marriages have changed. The whole sort of look of it has changed. And, you know, I know that most people I know are divorced now. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I had said was the difference of opinion about saving money versus spending money. In the city, in New York City, we see a lot of families that have substance abuse issues and which can lead to some mental health issues. And, and I think that's sadly a big reason that relationships end. And then just sort of boredom, maybe grown apart. But really, it's funny. I don't know if Emily, you disagree. I can't really say infidelity is the main reason people show up. It might be a symptom of something else. I would but agree it's, that, yeah. it's never really, it's never front and center. I shouldn't say never, but for the most part, it's, it's, not, it's not what you would expect. It's not front and center. It's, it's unusual that you have a case where somebody says, I thought our marriage was 100% perfect and everything was fantastic. And then she had an affair, right? Usually they both know there's other stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, I, for having done quite a few of these now, I understand that infidelity is never really the catalyst. It's just, you know, the, the sort of by, byproduct of something much larger. Just find the question of why people get divorced, I think, is often tied to the question of why people get married. There is no such thing as the sort of perfect marriage because what's a good marriage is means that both of the parties have the same expectations and hope for what their marriage is going to be. And then they're both living in that reality, right? You can 
have a marriage that's perfect for one person that would be a horrible marriage for somebody else. And so I think the reasons that people get married can also become reasons that they may decide to get divorced if whatever it is that they thought was their kind of bargain going into it seems to get broken by one or both of them. Do you think that postnups and prenups really change are a game changer for everybody? I mean, would you really suggest these? They're a game changer for the divorce process. They can really help the divorce process be streamlined if they're drafted well, if they're comprehensive, and if people stick to them, because they can help you avoid a lot of litigation about valuing assets, about dividing assets, about determining what assets are at play. So they can certainly help in that regard. And to Emily's point, it can help, but if it's not comprehensive, it's not drafted well, then you're probably dealing with a divorce that will be longer than if you didn't have a prenup. Interesting. I mean, I've seen, I mean, you guys are both so accredited in this line of work because, you know, I'm looking, you're both law line list, top women faculty of 2019, which is amazing. And so you must see just so much because listening to, I mean, I, people get so confused and lost in the whole process. And I think actually how long a marriage is lasting do you, at the moment, do you see? I mean, I, my friends are sort of hitting rocks after 10 to 12 years. And I think it was between seven and 10 to 12. And now I think people just are less and less are getting married. And getting married later. Yes, yeah. much I think, later. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of marriages it, around the five-year mark. And you had mentioned this earlier, Caroline, about the woman who was only in the short marriage. And those are some of the more challenging cases because you, you'll see a lot of women, especially here in New York City, where they did have a career. They left the career to raise their children. And now they're in their maybe early to mid 40s or 50s. And everyone's pretending that it's very easy for them to get back into their career when in fact it's not. And, and because the marriage is of a shorter duration here in New York, especially it, it's that, that determines the duration of the support. Right. And so you have these women who they're very lost and they're and, and, but we're seeing more of that. And unfortunately right now, the way the law is here, it doesn't protect them in terms of spousal support. That's really global. I mean, one of the things being a woman in business over here, every time I advertise a job here, I get a, stream of divorced women, as I was saying before, who used to come in and sort of want to drop off their children at nine and then pick them up at three and get back into the workforce very slowly. And they don't really know what they did, but 20 years ago they did this or 10 years ago they'd done that. And I'm like, but since then there are quite a few young people that have come up and, you know, They've, they've got better education in it. They, they are, I mean, I used to work off sort of, I'd learn on the job, but you can't do that anymore. And I think, you know, these women have got so used to being out of work and living a certain way, which is like, you know, sort of, as I said, dropping off their kids, picking up their kids. It, it doesn't happen like that. And I want to shake women and say, you know, no matter how, whether you get uh, marry a rich man or not, don't give up your career because it is so hard to get back in. I mean, I, you know, I'm a woman who is divorced. So I sort of, I sort of look beyond a CV, but I can imagine in a corporate world, there's no way they'd even get through the front door. Yeah. And I think it's, we always encourage it to some degree, whether it's even finding volunteer work or some type of charity that's in line with your skill set, And then that way it's, you know, you're not totally dipped out. Yeah. And you're actually used to being in a workplace, I suppose, and showing up and coming back. I think that's the, the biggest thing. Once you've been out of just being around people and been in baby mode, it's very hard to go back into someone telling you where you have to be in what time. 
Right. And also technologies come such a long way, right? I mean, what we've seen in the last 20 years with technology is probably the biggest growth we've we've had. So it's hard to go. I, I always, I love this story. I, I represented a woman who was a paralegal before she was married and they were married for almost 30 years. And my, my adversary said, she could go back to being a paralegal. And my client said to me, yeah, if there's a power outage, she's like, I don't know how to do anything this day and age with the computer. <laughs> like I wouldn't even know where to start. She's like, I would be the best paralegal if there was no technology or electricity. <laughs> So. No, I understand that. I think it's also the division of power also, you know, that's in a relationship can also make it difficult if you have set up that kind of traditional dynamic where you have the mom who's at home with the kids and the dad who's out working, then so much of the identity for that woman is wrapped up in the concept of herself as the parent, right? And if you move into a divorce, particularly now where we're seeing the trend being much more of a presumption of a 50-50 custodial arrangement even if when the marriage was intact, one person did most of the parenting and the other one was sort of the fun weekend guy who paid for everything. That can be really hard for women who have made their identity motherhood because they have to sort of give that up half the time, but they don't feel like they have the confidence or the skill set to go out and take on something else. And in some ways, when they do feel like they're trying to get firm footing in a career or you know, in, a, in a job environment, that feels as though they're taking away something from the identity that they've created for themselves as you know, mother. So redefining that can be a real emotional barrier for women who are transitioning into being self-supporting. What happens if the spouse who made all the money suddenly loses his job in the middle of a divorce? And then, then what happens? You know, because does it count if he gets a new job later or is, it, is the divorce settled on where he is today? It depends why he lost his job, right? Did he do something to cause the termination or is he a part of some sort of layoff at the company? But typically what we do in those circumstances is we will, I mean, you don't want to hold up the divorce because while they're looking for a job, but what we like to do is in an agreement, the final agreement resolving all the issues is build in provisions when he does get a job, some type of formula to figure out what the support would be then. And then you try to come up with some sort of temporary support for the period, maybe while he's unemployed. But you could spell it out. And that's, again, it goes to, you know, getting really strong lawyers. And there's so much discretion in matrimonial law. And the best lawyers are the ones who are super clever with ways to resolve it for that particular family. And you really need that when you have somebody who's lost their job. Do you have in New York, I don't know, because you do here, but like if you're in a family home and they say, you know, you want to move out because you're, you know, obviously you're getting divorced and you, you don't want to be around each other. But some lawyers say don't move out, stay in the marital home until it's done. Is, is, do, do you need to do that? Because that seems like torture to me. It's hard. It's really hard from, a, from the perspective of your interest in the house, right? A lot of people hear that advice and they think it's about this kind of war of the roses, you know, who can hold on to the house longest wins, right? It's really not about the property at all. Your property rights, at least in New York, most of the states that we're aware of, who's actually occupying the house during the divorce case has nothing to do with who's going to get it in the end or what the value distribution is going to be. It's really all about custody. So if you're a parent who's going to move out of the house, you, the advice generally you're going to get is make sure there is at least an interim parenting time custody schedule in place that guarantees you time with your kids. Because if you just go ahead and move out without that, you're sort of at the mercy of the parent who's still in the residence. When are you going to be allowed there to see the kids? What if they don't agree to, you know, the kids coming to your place for a few nights while you're trying to iron out that schedule, months could go by. And now we've established a new status quo where the person who's in the house is the primary parent. 
right? And then you're fighting against that presumption to try and get time. So when we get a case, we really have to balance that against what the level of hostility is in the home. Obviously, there's going to be some hostility because you're getting divorced, but is it dangerous? Is it toxic? Is it the kind of thing that is unhealthy for you, for the children? Certainly, is there abuse going on that requires somebody to get out of the house? In circumstances like that, you're going to push much harder earlier on in the case to try and get somebody out because it's a real balancing act. And for the courts, it's really tough for them to balance the rights of both parents to stay in a home that they co-own, right? How do you pick somebody to get out against the interest of the best interest of the kids and really of the parties too from having that toxic situation? And it's a very, very high burden in New York to get a court to say somebody must move out of the house. But Many judges will work with you, their court staff will work with you to really try and help the parties come to a parenting time agreement that will allow somebody to get out. And then things like, do you need to always file a fault petition to get it for the divorce? Does it or do you have to find blame for one of the parties or can you just say it's we've just. Yeah, not in the U.S. you don't. And I think I think I'm correct in saying that New York state was one of the last states, if not the last state to become what we call a no fault jurisdiction. And it was a long fight to get it. And we got it, I think in 2009, 2010. And it's, it's been, I think one of the best pieces of legislation we've had here in New York in terms of matrimonial family law, because when we started out the cases having to prove fault, I, I mean, it's impossible then to get on the right track. I mean, feelings get hurt. It's only natural. And I actually hated that part of the practice. And, and, and since then, whenever somebody on the other side of one of my cases, if they file anything with fault in it whatsoever, I just say to my client, they don't know what they're doing. And the, they're, they're not set, the judge is not going to be happy with them. So no, no fault is, is the way to go. Even if you've got lots of fault, no fault is the way to go. <laughs> I think people have a misconception that if they can really demonstrate what a, you know, pardon my French, what a shithead their spouse is, somehow that's going to have financial repercussions. And it's, you know, at least in New York and in many of the other states, it's only in what they call egregious fault circumstances. So severe abuse, you know, significant criminal activity that the fault is going to have any impact on the distribution of the assets. So there's really no reason to get into that mud pit. And also to the extent somebody was spending on gambling or prostitutes or gifts for a girlfriend, you, you'll recoup that on the financial end. You don't have to lay it out in terms of your cause of action for divorce. And what if your husband then reneges on his settlement and then just simply doesn't pay you? What, what comeback do you have? After he signed, you mean? Yes. Right. You can go to court to enforce the agreement. But that takes quite a long time, right? I mean, they always get enforced or... You know, it takes time and cost. I mean, can they just stop like that or it, it's always put back in place or, you know, a lot of men do stop. Yeah, we try to get, if you can, some type of maybe confession of judgment against the spouse who's going to be owing the money. Maybe you have some type of consequence built into the agreement. If they default on one provision, then it triggers getting payment from some other, you know, from some other source. Because if they're always late on payments, it makes you late on payments. It makes, you know, all of these things, which has an adverse effect on your life. And a lot of men use money to control the woman far later than over divorce, you know, because somehow, even if they've moved on, they like to maintain that control aspect. 
That writing's usually on the wall though, right? So it's it, 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 <laughs> it, like, it's not, I mean, I can't really think of a case where somebody was always you know, honoring their obligations and then suddenly the, the divorce happens and then they're just going to abandon them. But so, so usually you could see during the case what type of person you're dealing with and then you know what protections you need to try to include in the agreement. Minimum, we often include provisions that if somebody has to go to court to enforce the agreement and they're successful, then the party that they that defaulted has to pay the attorney's fees, right? So to try to defray the cost a little bit. But it's also true that, you know, life is imperfect, right? And we can get you a great agreement that's very clear, that really spells out what everybody's obligations are. If the other person isn't going to follow it, you have to do the cost benefit analysis of, is it worth it to pursue this or not, right? I mean, is it, he stopped paying child support? Yeah, I'm going to go follow up on that. Is it he's supposed to drop the kid off at six and he keeps showing up at 6.30? You know, do I want to go to court about that? Only you can decide whether things are important enough to pursue them. That custody example that Emily just gave is something that you'll see during the course of the case, right? You'll notice that the one, maybe there's one parent that's always late. So maybe you want to include a provision that says to the extent they're late by a certain amount of time, they're going to have to cover your childcare cost for that period of time. Or if they're, you know, more than 45 minutes, an hour late, maybe they forfeit that afternoon or something. So you can go on and you and the child are not just sitting there, you know, twirling your hair while you're waiting for the other parent. Alimony. Does it finish when you get remarried? In New York, it does. I think in in the Middle East, we don't have sort of a very high alimony or child support here. Everything is done. It's either Sharia law or, you know, European law. So it's a very, very different way here. And I think that the options that we have, like, as I said, mine goes, everything goes till 21, which is great for us, actually. I, I think that is one thing that actually does work, regardless of whether you remarry or mine is fixed till my children are 21 and then I move on. I do think that if you've been with someone 20 years, that you are also due some alimony. Well, I think it depends on how we think about alimony, right? There's, there's a couple of different concepts behind alimony. The, the primary one is to help a spouse transition from being supported during the marriage to becoming self-supporting. Yes. So if you're getting remarried, makes sense that that stops, right? Because now somebody else should be jumping on the supporting bandwagon. So my final question for you all is, from everything you've learned, what would you suggest to new young newlyweds going into a marriage? What should they discuss financially before they get married? Really? I mean, I do think, as I said, the look of marriage is changing. I don't think anything is forever anymore. I believe in, you know, more chapters than you know, till death do us part, which is an unrealistic way to live. And if you know that that might be the way it's going to end up, what can you do to prepare yourself today so that it's not a shit show by the time they get to you? And if you could, you know, negotiate a little bit before you got married, that you all knew where you were going to end up regardless, wouldn't that make for a happier marriage? Just putting it out there. Yeah, I think it goes, it all goes back to the finances. Have a conversation about is your primary goal to save? What is it to save for to buy a home? What does it look like when children are born? Will you both participate in raising the children? Will one of you be expected to pull back in your career? So I think I think those are two really important conversations to have up front before you're even married. And what are your financial circumstances? You know, try and get some transparency. I think people are often surprised that the indicia of wealth don't always equate to wealth, right? The guy who drives a super nice car and has access to a fancy beach house may not own the beach house, may not own the car, may be leveraged up to you know, the hilt. So make sure you have actual information. 
you know, what are we talking about in terms of assets and savings and debt? So, you know, which tells you not only what you might be getting yourself into, but also how they have approached their financial life up to this point. And these are very awkward conversations to have, especially when you're sort of at the beginning of a relationship. Most people don't want to go there. And that's the problem, I think, that they just, you know, men over sort of sell themselves and women, you know, also oversell themselves and don't want to, you know, they want to be the perfect wife. And they, these conversations aren't had at the beginning. And then as it goes on, it's a lot later. It's a lot harder to do it. No. Well, I don't know that this is first date conversation, but, you know, certainly before you're walking down the aisle, you should have that conversation. I mean, thank you very much. I, I agree. I'm a product of it. So having had a, a very easy divorce, actually, and very fast one, I can't tell you going into my new, into my new marriage, how we laid everything on the table. And we did a, po- a prenup. We did all of that. We've done a postnup prenup. We're doing wills. We are making it so easy because, you know, I guess with my age difference, everyone's waiting for it to happen anyway. So I'm just prepared <laughs> myself <laughs> and him. Thank you. It's really a good, it's like, it's such a huge insight for all of us because that is something I have so many friends going through it right now who are just so lost and lawyers, I think it's really daunting how to pick the right lawyer, what to, what questions to ask, how to sort of get the steps going without alerting the spouse that this might be the way you're going. Yeah. It's, it's funny now, you know, we've been in this zoom era for the last two years, but I, going forward now that we're reopened, I I'll only meet with people in person at the first meeting, because you really, when you're talking about how you find a lawyer, you have to just feel that personal connection, right? It's, we have to like the person and then the client has to like us because we're going to be with them for probably a year, two years, or even longer. We're going to be asking a lot of personal questions that don't feel comfortable to talk about. And so you just got to feel if you have that chemistry. Thank you very much. That's really helpful. It's been great talking to both of you. And I'm sure you're going to help a lot of women on this podcast. And I'm going to put your details up so that people can get in touch with both of you if they need to. And I hope that all of you listening have gained some, I mean, you've answered a lot of people's questions today. So I was looking at my piece of paper, sorry, but I had so many questions because people are so fascinated. So there they all are. (laughs) And really appreciate both of your time. So thank you so much for coming on Divorce Not Dead. Thank you for listening to Divorce Not Dead. Tune in next Wednesday for a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Follow me on social media at at Caroline Stanbury for all the behind the scene action. 